Baptist Church, uh, Pastor Michael, for allowing me the opportunity to come this morning and to fill the pulpit. Again, a crazy introduction at Chipotle uh, is all it takes, I guess. Um, but it is a joy uh, to be here this morning. I grew up here in Hampton. Uh, my parents live here in Yorktown, so you're not too far away from where we hang out. And so it's a joy um, to be with you all this morning. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24 is where we'll be today. Um, as I met with uh, Pastor Michael on, on Tuesday for our short rendezvous, again, wasn't planned. It's amazing how the Lord uh, puts, puts us together. Um, he asked me what I was going to preach on. He said, as long as it's not an axe, or I forget what you're going through now, but you told me something else. And I said, no, it's neither of those, so we're good. Um, Luke 24, verses 13 through 35 are where, we'll be, where we will be today as we look at a familiar story, um, the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, these two disciples encountering a man who we know eventually they realize is Jesus. And so the title of my sermon is a question, and it's this, does your heart burn within you? Does your heart burn within you? And of course, as we travel these verses this morning, the question will be answered in how we see and view and value the very word of God. And so Luke chapter 24 is where we'll be, starting in verse 13. Let me pray for us one more time, and then I'll read the section, and then we'll get into our time of study. Father, again, I thank you and praise you for your loving kindness to make this day possible, to give us the, the privilege and honor of being able to gather in your house with brothers and sisters in Christ that we may be encouraged, we may be edified, we may be lifted up, that we may have the joy of singing your praises, of lifting our requests and our, our burdens and our concerns to you, Lord God, our praises to you. And then most importantly, Lord God, we may have the privilege of opening up the wonderful gift of your word and learning from it. Father, I find myself even this morning um, being riddled with human emotions of nervousness and and just fear of messing up, Lord God. And I know those things are from the devil trying to distract my mind, Lord God. And I know the only reason I stand here is because of the Holy Spirit. And so I thank you and praise you again for the opportunity to stand behind this pulpit. And my prayer is, is very simple, Lord. It's the one I always pray. Lord, help me to proclaim your truth rightly and help me to do it clearly. Father, I pray that our ears would be open to hear your word. I pray that our hearts, our minds would be open to understand it. I pray that our hearts would be open and ready to receive it. And that by your gracious and loving and kind will, that you would plant the truths of your word deep into our heart, that we might be changed and transformed and made more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the reason we are even able to gather. And so let us lift high your name. And Holy Spirit, sanctify us by the truth that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. Father, be glorified as we spend this time together. Use this time for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Before we begin, I have five points, I guess you could say, since this is a Baptist church, I guess I can use that word. Uh, five points to this morning's uh, sermon I'll give them to you very quickly, but I'll, I'll repeat them, so don't worry if you're a note taker, don't, don't freak out. Uh, the first one is this, the Savior hides himself in verses 13 through 16. 
The second is the, sa- the sadness is explained in verses 17 through 24. The scriptures are proclaimed in verses 25 through 27. The Savior is revealed in verses 28 through 31. And the sadness is turned to joy into joy, verses 32 through 35. Let me, let me start in verse 13 and read our section. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are the words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened, but also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. Verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. To give a little context here, we know at the end of Luke, uh, this, is, this is maybe 36 hours from Jesus' crucifixion. This is Sunday, the day where Jesus has risen from the dead. In fact, Cleopas goes on to say that some women have gone to the tomb and have come back telling us the body is no longer there. Men went, we know one was Peter, and they went and looked in the tomb and found no body and believed and, and proclaimed that Jesus had risen. But these two men, instead of rejoicing with their Fellow believers chose to leave Jerusalem, probably sad, confused, in despair of what had taken place, not quite sure what was happening. We know from Jesus' public ministry that even his disciples weren't quite sure how all this was going to work out. And so these two men began a trip to Emmaus, or Emmaus, however you may pronounce it, a town about seven miles west of Jerusalem, a two-hour trip on foot. And they began this journey in great sadness and in great turmoil. 
The first of my points is this again. The Savior hides himself in verses 13 and 16. And behold, two of them were, gathered, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So we know that Jesus has risen from the dead. He has appeared to other folks before this time with these two men. And here are these two believers traveling to Emmaus in great discouragement and great, in great uh, disheartment. And so Jesus, in his infinite mercy, and of course according to his sovereign plan, chooses to join the caravan going to Emmaus, these two men, and begins to listen in to what they are saying. And the scriptures are very clear that, that Jesus, God himself, hides Jesus from these men's attention. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has hidden himself. When he was raised from the dead and Mary was looking for him, Mary confused Jesus with the gardener. And it wasn't until Jesus spoke that Mary realized this was no gardener. This was indeed Jesus, the Son of God. Now, what does this say about God? It says that he is all-powerful. He has created our bodies. He has created everything that we know that exists. And because of his power, because of what he can do, he can alter what these men have seen or what these men know. So that in this moment, as they are traveling along, they believe this is some third party that has just joined them in their journey. Why does God do this? I'm not quite sure. But here's what I would presuppose. Is that as we go through this chapter, as we go through this passage together, their eyes are going to be open, not based on who they see, but based on what they hear. Because it isn't until the end of the chapter that Jesus is finally revealed that it is he, the Christ, the Savior, in the breaking of bread. And before that, Jesus teaches them who he is from the Old Testament. And so again, we know that faith comes from hearing and not from seeing. And so there is purpose here in God hiding his own son from their very image because he wants them to truly believe, not because of what they've seen, but because of the message they have heard. And in fact, we're reminded of Thomas, one of the disciples in the upper room, that he would not believe until he had touched the side, till he touched the feet, till he touched the hands of Jesus. And when he did, he believed, and yet Jesus said, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That is, that is you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ. So the Savior hides himself. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, the sadness is explained in verses 17 through 24, I'll read them again to us. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman has, the women has said. But him they did not see. Jesus approaches these two men. He begins to hear what they are saying. 
And he says in verse 17, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? Before we answer that question, let me explain to you who here is on this journey. We have Cleopas and a second man who is not named here in this passage. Who is Cleopas? According to church historian Isubius, Cleopas was Jesus' uncle, Joseph's brother, and he became a leader of the Jerusalem church. We do not know much about the other man with Cleopas. Many in church, early church history believed it was possibly Luke, who is the author of this gospel. So you can understand Cleopas is anguished more than others, maybe. Not only has Jesus, the one he believed in, died, but according to history, if, if they have it right, Jesus was Cleopas' nephew. So even one of his own family has perished in a most hideous, hideous way. And but notice how Cleopas responds to Jesus' question again in verse 17. What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. Why? Because they have to explain to this man what has happened. The wounds are fresh. The anguish is real. The sadness is deep. And yet here is a man, as Cleopas goes on to say, how are you the only one in Jerusalem or really in the surrounding region, who has not heard what has taken place. Now we know that Jesus' crucifixion is not the first crucifixion in history, but it is the one that has the greatest significance. In fact, no other crucifixion did the veil tear from top to bottom in the temple. No other crucifixion did the day turn to night, and no other crucifixion that we know in history where the earth itself shook when the Savior gave up his spirit. So while it's not the first, it's the most significant. If for no other reason that when Christ gave up his spirit, sin was paid for forever. And made available, salvation made available to his people. But again, we look at Cleopas' emotion. Of course, he's going to be sad because he has to explain to this man what has happened when surely he should have known. Now, of course, Jesus does know. He lived it. He went through all of it. But he wants to hear in Cleopas' words what he saw and what he experienced. So again, in verse 19, he says, what things? And so in a few short verses, Jesus, uh, Cleopas excuse me, gives a summary of what has taken place. And of course he starts in, in verse 19. The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. It's interesting the way that Cleopas responds to Jesus here, of course not knowing it Jesus, but I'm not going to just say a man. I'm going to use Jesus here, even though we understand the context. He doesn't call him Savior. He doesn't call him Messiah. He calls him a prophet mighty in deed. What does this tell us about Cleopas? It tells us that Cleopas is not quite there in his faith. It tells us he's, he's on the path. He's been listening to what Jesus has been teaching. He's seen what has taken place. He's unsure of what's now going to happen. And so he's on the path, I believe, to believing in Christ as Lord and Savior. But his hopes were not what Jesus had planned. And in fact, he... He reveals this more to us as we go along here in this, in this section. He tells the man, Jesus, the chief priest, gave, sentenced him to death, gave him up to death, and talked about their plot, I'm sure, to bring him and, and, and to, to try him in front of a court that was 
that was awful and ridiculous. But of course, Jesus was without sin. He never did anything to deserve the cross, but rather laid down his life freely. We know that from the scriptures. But in verse 21, Cleopas says this, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. So here we get a glimpse of what Cleopas was hoping would happen. Now we know that from Jesus' public ministry, when he was with his disciples, he would teach them what he was going to do. He wasn't always clear, and God had a plan for that. But he did say over and over again, I am going to die and I am going to rise from the dead. In fact, he compared himself to the temple. This, you will destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Talking about his body, the disciples believing he was talking about the actual building of the temple. Other disciples believed that Jesus had come to actually physically restore Israel back to its prominence as the great kingdom it once was. The Old Testament tells us that a man will come who will sit on the throne of David forever and ever, a seed of David. Jesus is that king, but this is not the time for his kingdom to be established forever. And that's what Cleopas was hoping for. Cleopas was hoping that Jesus is that man who is going to establish his kingdom forever, and we will finally be out of the oppression of the Roman Empire. So Cleopas was more concerned with what he could get out of this than what Jesus was actually coming to accomplish. Now, I don't talk bad about Cleopas for that because we're all human. We might all think the same thing if we were in his position. Again, God was very purposeful in hiding the deep truths of what Jesus was teaching even from his own disciples. In fact, in John 13, when after Judas has left to go do the will of Satan in betraying Jesus... Jesus continues teaching his disciples that he is now going to death. He doesn't clearly say that, but we know what he is saying now. And he tells them one day when the Spirit comes, all this will truly be revealed to you. And so you understand not only the sadness and disheartment that Cleopas is suffering through, but the, the, the juggling in his mind of this was not the way it was supposed to be. But this is exactly what God had planned. There is some hope, though, Cleopas tells us, that some women left that day to go, as we know, to anoint the body of Jesus for burial, to give spices and, 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 and perfumes on his body. And, of course, on the way, the, they get there and the, the stone is rolled away and angels waiting there. And he tells them, Jesus is not here. They run back to tell the disciples. We know that Peter and another disciple go to examine the tomb. They, they go in. They, they find the, clothes, the, the cloth that they wrap Jesus in laying there neatly folded. And yet the body is not there. So they come out not sure what to believe. They come back saying Jesus' body is not there. But notice what they're not saying, that he has risen. And so Cleopas, sees, Cleopas tells there's hope because we've, there's visions of angels that have taken place. Jesus' body is no longer in the tomb where he was laid. And even the disciples who went did not see him. So there in that section, Cleopas explains his sadness. We get it. When we think about the cross, it should make us sad. It should make us disheartened. It should make us angry that our Savior had to go through all that. But it also should bring us joy that our Savior went through that. 
It should cause our hearts to leap with happiness and gladness that our God and Father would send His Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation or sacrifice for our sins. So that you and I, as created by God, no longer stand before Him judged, but if He has saved us, we stand before Him redeemed because of what Christ has done. Cleopas can't have this kind of joy yet because he's not there. He's almost there. He's getting there. And as we'll see, he continues that journey and God graciously saves him by the time we're done with this this passage. The third thing is this. The scriptures are proclaimed. Verses 25 through 27. The scriptures are proclaimed. Jesus says in, in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now if we hadn't read that part yet, we might think, well, Jesus is going to respond in a very compassionate, loving, and merciful way. But he doesn't do that. What does he call them? He says, oh, foolish men. I'm sure you would not like to be called a fool by anyone, but they are acting foolish because they are not listening and believing in what Jesus told them from the very beginning. In fact, they're not even believing in the very scriptures of the Old Testament, which have proclaimed the coming of Christ since the foundation of the world. The very first words of evangelism were Genesis 3.15 where Adam and Eve are standing before God being judged for their sin. And after all the judgment is given, you can imagine the turmoil that Adam and Eve are facing, knowing, feeling the weight and magnitude of what they have done. And God says to them, but I'm going to send you a seed, capital S. It's going to come from you, Mary, or going to come from you, Eve, excuse me. And while he may bruise your heel, you will, he will crush Satan's head. And of course, we know that was lived out at the cross. Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified, is called the place of the skull. That is not a coincidence. And many theologians and many commentators describe it as though Jesus' cross was a spike into the very skull of Satan. And that his death accomplished the salvation of his people. And so this is why Jesus calls them foolish, because they should have known this. In fact, many in in Jerusalem should have been looking for the Messiah. Many in Jerusalem, they they know the Old Testament. They've heard it taught. The religious leaders themselves should have been telling people, look out, be on guard, here are the prophecies. I've joked with with the small group that I I lead during during our Christmas time series, we did Advent. And I said, why didn't the Pharisees have someone at Bethlehem just waiting? The prophecies are clear. A woman who is a virgin is going to give birth. Why, why isn't there, there, there this, was a, this was a different kind of birth. Not every birth did shepherds come to pay homage. Not every birth did wise men travel across the world to bring, golds, uh, to bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, so why didn't the Pharisees have someone stationed in Bethlehem for this kind of birth? Yet they didn't because they didn't believe what the prophecies proclaimed. These are the men who are leading Israel. So, of course, Israel is not looking. Israel is not truly longing for their Messiah. They're hoping for physical freedom. 
They're hoping for Israel to be reestablished as the great kingdom under David, but they've missed the point. That you can have all the physical freedom in the world, but if you are not spiritually free, you are destined for damnable hell. And so Jesus calls them foolish, not because he doesn't love them, but because they're not seeing clearly. He says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, talking about the Old Testament. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? We all know it was. So beginning with Moses and with the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself to all the, all the, excuse me, in all the scriptures. And again, I go back to this is what I believe the reason why that God hid Jesus' image or their ability to see this as Jesus from them. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He wants them to believe because of what the word proclaims, not because of what their eyes see. And so what does it tell us that Jesus, beginning with Moses, all the way back from the very beginning, begins to explain how the Old Testament points to him. How over 300 prophecies proclaim that he is indeed the Messiah. He even says to them, wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Well, we can read, if nothing else, we can read the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52 and 53, and know that the suffering servant is indeed Jesus Christ who would suffer for the sins of his people. Matthew Henry said this, Christ could not have been a savior if he had not first been a sufferer. Jesus came knowing he was going to suffer. Jesus came knowing he was going to die, and yet he came. Out of his great love for us, the Romans that we read just a few moments ago, he died loving us even in our sin. And so what does it say here? He says that he begins with the prophets. Let's not dismiss this. Let's not gloss over this because many today would say, at least one popular pastor, we can unhitch the Old Testament from the New. No, you can't. The Old Testament proclaims Christ. The New Testament proclaims Christ. So Jesus is saying here, the Old Testament leads to me. Therefore, it leads to the gospel. Therefore, it leads to salvation. It would be interesting to know what Jesus actually said to these men. We don't have that. In God's infinite wisdom, which I'm okay with, decided not to give us the sermon that, or the Bible study that Jesus led these two men in. But we may guess, I think it's okay to guess what Jesus might have told them, what verses he might have pulled from the Old Testament to proclaim that, that this man was the Christ, the Savior. If we look at the Old Testament itself, the, a large majority of it revolves around a sacrificial system, which was never going to be good enough. The blood of bulls and goats are not good enough to pay for the sins against the eternal God. Only the eternal God could do that in Christ, his son. But what verses might he have used? Genesis 3.15, we've talked about that one. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He might have turned, he might have uh, taught them Isaiah 53, 3 through 7. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. That's Isaiah 53. Or maybe he spoke Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Or maybe one more. I won't, I won't use the whole Old Testament. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will, look on me whom, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Brother and sister in Christ, to truly understand, to truly understand the Bible, we need to see Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. From Genesis all the way to Revelation. Jesus was and is the Messiah who has come. Jesus was and is God with us. Jesus was and is, is the Lamb who was taken away for the world's sin. And has the power to rule and reign over all creation. And this is the education that, that God, that Jesus gives to these two men. And again, it is important for us to understand the Bible is the source of all truth. That we need to grow in our relationship with Christ and be sanctified and made more like him. If you don't believe me, 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. So in those three verses, Jesus uses the Old Testament to say, this is speaking of me. Number four, the Savior is revealed, verses 28 through 31. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening. And the day is now nearly over, so he went in to stay with them. When he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. As we'll find out here in our last section in a few moments, as Jesus continued to teach, their hearts burned within them. I know what you're thinking. It's not because of something they ate. <laughs> it's because their hearts were stirred. I imagine their spirits were on fire because it's one thing to have myself teach you, it's one thing to have Pastor Michael teach you, but if Jesus taught you his word from his mouth, I'm sure our spirits would burn hot as well. And this is what these men experienced. God's grace and mercy on full display, not to lead these two men wandering to Emmaus in their sad and, dis and disheartened state, but to come to them and say, it is me, I am him, the Christ. And so they get to their destination toward evening, Maybe a village along the way, maybe, maybe where they were finally going to end up. And, and they compel him to stay. 
Now, this word compel in the Greek means to employ force or compel. In other words, they were not going to let him leave. And, of course, we know that God is sovereignly working this out, so Jesus was going to stay anyways. But it was their reaction that I'm sure Jesus enjoyed. They are hearing what I am saying, and their hearts are burning. Their souls are ignited within them, and they want to know more. That's how every Christian should respond to the word of God. It doesn't mean that we stay in 24 hours a day, seven days a week of having our Bibles open before us and never do anything else. That would be impossible. God's not called us to do that. But it does mean that we put forth the effort to take the word of God with us in our hearts through memorizing scripture. It does mean that we spend time every day, yes, I said every day, if it's five minutes or 35 minutes, in the Word of God, reading and studying it. It means that with the, when the opportunity is available at church to hear the Word of God preached by whoever it may be that preaches it, we come faithfully and we long for God to speak to us through His Word. And this is what these men wanted more of. And this is what we should long for as well. So Jesus decides to stay. Of course, the decision had already been made. This was his plan. Nothing about this has changed anything about God because if God can change, we know that we are without hope. So let's, let's not worry about that. So he sits down with them for a meal. He is put in the regarded place, the place for the guest of honor, which is where he should rightfully be. He takes the bread, blesses it, then breaks it and passes it out. And as he does this, the eyes of the men are suddenly open and they realize this is Jesus Christ. The man who died and has now risen from the dead. Now please understand this was not Passover. Passover has already taken place. This is an ordinary meal in which Jesus is doing the exact same thing which he did at Passover for his disciples. He took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. And we, we can't gloss over that. We can't just dismiss that. God is using the breaking of bread to signify what he has already done. He has broke, his body has been broken to pay for sin, to bring salvation to his people. It illustrates the entire message of what Christ has proclaimed to them as they've journeyed from Jerusalem to this village, either Emmaus or somewhere along the way. And at that moment, their eyes are open, the scales fall off, as we might think of in Paul's, in Paul's um, story. And they recognize Jesus for who he truly is. But in that moment, he vanishes. Men who were once sad, frustrated, angry, and disheartened were now overwhelmed with joy. Why? Because they see their Savior is alive. They realize this man who's been speaking to us is the man that we have followed for these last few years. He is the one who has died and has risen from the dead. And let's not gloss over the fact of what Jesus, what God did here. He opened their eyes. It was not them who finally realized. It was not something in their brain that finally clicked. No, God took off the blinders and allowed them to see Jesus for who he truly was and is. The Holy Spirit allowed them to truly see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. God works in the same way today. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are spiritually blind. And there is nothing you can do to take away that blindness except throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of God. Confess Christ as Lord of your life. 
Believe in him as Lord and Savior, and the Bible says you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Christ from the dead, and you will be saved. It's not a might. It's not a hopefully you will be saved. This is the same work we see here opening. This is not just their physical eyes are open. Their spiritual eyes are open. I believe this is the moment of salvation for Cleopas and for his friend. They believe because of what they heard, and it's reinforced because of what they have now seen. And of course, let's not, let, let's not dismiss the fact that Jesus vanished. <laughs> that doesn't happen, ever. <laughs> not even for magicians. <laughs> Jesus vanished because his body was glorified. It was supernatural. The one that you and I, like the one that you and I will receive and, and, and when, when the Lord returns and establishes kingdom forever, his new heaven and new earth. We know this because we see that in Luke 24, 12, he had a body that passed through grave clothes. And in John 20, we see that he passed through walls to really to minister to Thomas. And in Luke 24, 36, a few verses down, Jesus goes immediately from here back into Jerusalem and appears to those gathered together a two-hour journey just like that. But we also know that he had a real body because in that same chapter in John 20, Thomas touches his skin to feel his scars. In Luke 24, the ne- uh, just a few verses um, down, he is going to eat fish. And so a glorified body that God has, he shows us, or excuse me, that Jesus has, he shows us that his resurrection is indeed true and real. Which leads us to number five, the last point for today. The sadness is turned into joy The sadness is turned into joy. Verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. If we go back and read the beginning of our passage, we see men who are disheartened, who are sad, who are angry, who are frustrated, who are in tears, walking to the city of, to the, to the town of Emmaus. And now we see men who are running back to Jerusalem because their hearts are overfilled with joy, because of happiness, because of excitement, because they know that Jesus is truly the Messiah, that he is truly alive. And how do they know that? Again, not by what they have seen, but first by what they heard. He says here in in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? They didn't know that was Jesus. The word has power to stir And to convict and to challenge the hearts of unbelievers and believers. To save those who are lost. And to edify and sanctify and build up those who are saved. And so that very hour, it was evening, they get up, leave the town. They go back to Jerusalem. Why? Because they want to tell the good news. They want to tell what they've experienced. They want to tell people about who Christ is and in seeing Christ that he is the Messiah. This is the same thing that you and I should be doing. 
Whether it's from hearing the word taught on Sunday morning or, or reading it on our daily devotions or, or hearing it on a podcast or on, on, on the internet, whatever it may be, it should stir our hearts to once again be in love with our Savior, to have the joy of our salvation be evident not just in the way we live, but in proclaiming Christ to those we encounter. And so upon, it, getting in, upon, upon returning to Jerusalem, they, they, they find the 11 disciples. They begin to share their stories of seeing Jesus. And they all begin to rejoice. And again, Luke, the author here, makes an important, he, he, he repeats himself here at the end of verse 30, 35. He was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Again, pointing to the fact that that breaking of bread is a symbol of Christ's body broken for you and for me. And again, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I'm not going to beg you to come, but I'm going to plead with you to throw yourself upon the mercy of God. You don't need to make yourself good. You don't need to get yourself in a place where you can accept Christ. He wants you right now just as you are. Because the only thing that can change you, the only thing that can make you whole, the only thing that can save you is the power of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It tells us the work of salvation is not a work accomplished by man, but a work only accomplished by God through Jesus Christ. And now as believers, we are being sanctified. We are being made more like Christ. So here are some points of application as we, as we conclude. Real quick. First, Jesus Christ is gracious, kind, and compassionate to meet his people where they are. Jesus is not waiting for those who belong to him to figure it all out. Instead, Jesus wants us to walk with him and allow the word of God to grow, us in a, in, grow in us a wise and understanding heart. Second, unbelief and a weak faith directly oppose our relationship with God. What Christ has done has satisfied what God the Father required of us. A payment we could not pay. In addition to that, God has given us his word, which reveals to us everything we need for what? Life and for godliness. So there is no reason to feel weak, to be weak, even though we do. We understand we're human, we're frail. But when it comes to our faith, we shouldn't be weak, we should be strong. There should be no unbelief left in us, brother and sister in Christ. Because yes, we have not seen the risen Lord. We have not gone to the graveside. We have not seen the cross where he died, but we have read it from the very lips of God and he does not lie. We may be tempted in, the, in these ways to be weak, but thank the Lord, we have the Holy Spirit, which gives us the power to overcome our weakness and that temptation. Third, do you long for and desire the truth of God's word? God's word was the cure for what was ailing Cleopas and his friend. In our passage, we have been shown what can happen when God's word is clearly and correctly taught. And I do mean that when it is clearly and correctly taught. So as believers, we should long for men who can stand behind the pulpit. They may not be the best speakers, but they clearly and correctly teach God's word. And those are the ones that we should champion. As believers in Christ, God's word should be what our hearts desire most and what we continue to long for, to study it and hear it taught. Ask God to help us understand and live out his word. It is not a sign to do this, is not a sign of inability, but a signal of great love for the Lord himself. And finally, as your heart and soul burn with passion and desire for God's word, with whom are we sharing that word?
If God's word is genuinely stirring in us such love for God, then the proper response is a love for others with whom we will share and proclaim God's word. Why? For the salvation of souls and for the building up and edification of each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. It is, a, it is the, the most amazing gift that anyone could ever give apart from Christ himself. It is true, we were not there that day. We didn't get to see the cross. We didn't get the privilege of going with Mary and the other women to see the grave empty. We didn't get the privilege of running with Peter and the disciples to see and confirm what the ladies told them. We didn't get the privilege of Thomas in the upper room getting the joy and privilege of even touching the very skin of the Savior. But yet Jesus says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. That takes greater faith, Lord. That takes greater love to believe what you have not seen. And how do we do that? Because your word tells us that it has happened and your word has been given to us by you and you do not lie, you do not fail, you keep all your truth. And so we can rejoice today in knowing that Christ has died for our sins, knowing that he has risen from the dead, defeating death, because that's what your word tells us, and it is right and true. So, Lord, take what we believe, take what we call dear to us, take what causes our souls to be stirred and our hearts and souls to burn, and proclaim it, Lord, to make it known, again, for the salvation of the lost and for the building up of each other. Father, I, I pray with all my heart that I have done what I've asked for, that I have clearly and correctly proclaimed your truth. I pray, Lord God, that you would take the truth that's been proclaimed because your word said it does not return void. Take it and let it be planted into each heart of, the, of those who've heard it. For those who are lost, save them. For those who are saved, sanctify them. Bless the rest of our service and let all this be done for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen.